so, um, uh, but I've never connected with the fast personally, partly because of my relationship to modern Israel. I'm not actually praying for the temple to be restored. I'm quite satisfied that uh, in the 20th century, a liberal democracy, such as it is in our flawed times, was created uh, in its stead, in, in its stead of a theocracy. And so I have a lot of mixed feelings about the, the um, historical kind of um, longings of Tisha B'Av, which are, uh, which have to do with the destroyed temple, but I'm not at all um, disconnected from the sense of sorrow uh, that um, and disconnection that the holiday marks, and so um, that's that that's just a, a little bit about me. Uh, let's see. Uh, Blaze said John Lewis's funeral is going on all day and well televised on many channels. Ellen Trebowasser says, when I worked at Camp Ramah in the late 60s, the older kids learned about the Holocaust on the eve of Tisha B'Av, sitting on the floor in a room lit only by flashlights. That sounds unforgettable, Ellen. So one of the customs of Tisha B'Av is that you do not study Torah with some exceptions. And I was reading about it, and the reason was because studying Torah is a pleasure. Uh, and so only sections that are uh, not pleasurable are considered uh, fit for Tisha B'Av. I had a problem with that. I've been looking at texts this morning, and I actually find it all a pleasure, despite the negative content sometimes. So that's a, that's a problem. But we aren't going to study the Torah portion today. Instead, we're gonna look at rabbinic stories, uh, not Torah stories. And the rabbinic stories I wanna look at are rabbinic stories that were told in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, and I've been focusing today, you know, I follow my fascination and I've been focusing um, on one of the rabbis who was part of the reinvention of Judaism after the destruction of the temple, Rabbi uh, Yehoshua, Yehoshua ben Hananiah, someone we don't talk about very much. Uh, we hear about Rabbi Akiva, we hear about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hirkanus. These are the most famous rabbis of that, that generation. But Rabbi Yehoshua is kind of like a um, a Zaidi, uh, he's, he's an incredibly important figure in all these stories that I, that I wanted, that I was taken by. He, now, what we know about Rabbi Yehoshua is this is similar to what all the stories of the, of the, um, uh, this, this cadre, of crucial rabbis who lived at the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century and had to figure out how to rescue Judaism after the uh, center of the universe had been shattered. Uh, these 
And again, uh, perhaps you're not familiar with this. If I, uh, it's important to say that the best analogy for what happened in the year 70 in the first century when Jerusalem was destroyed is the Holocaust in the 20th century. It was a total cataclysm. Tensions and conflicts with Rome had been rising and rising and the perfect toxic brew happened that led to a rebellion and an utter crushing of that rebellion, a scattering of Jewish leadership, hundreds of thousands probably of Jews dead, um, which if you think of ancient world populations, you'll, you'll understand how massive it was, dead or exiled or enslaved into Roman uh, penury. Um, and so the rabbis instituted a fast day called Tisha B'Av to mark this cataclysm, as I was saying last night, just as in contemporary times, uh, Yom HaShoah, a Holocaust Remembrance Day, has made its way into a fixed place on the Jewish calendar for most Jews in the world. There are some who don't mark it, but uh, when has anything been unanimous? How did they choose this particular date? Tisha B'Av? Yes. It was the day on which the temple was destroyed. Wow, okay. And if it wasn't, there's some speculation that this midsummer day uh, was related to a day um, of heat, fire. There may be other an analogs uh, that made Tisha B'Av a choice rather than an actual cal calendar date. But I've read about that and I don't have a, a firm grasp on it of, you know how, I mean, it would seem obvious that Hanukkah is at Hanukkah time when you light lights in the darkness because it coincides with the sol winter solstice and the dark of the moon. I mean, it seems obvious that the historical event whatever that was, didn't necessarily take place on the 25th of Kislev. Uh, uh, so I think it's fair to say that uh, there, I wouldn't be surprised if there was an analogous connection between the choosing of the 9th of Av as this to mark this day and something that may have already been extant in the practices of the ancient Near East at the time. If you follow what I'm saying, but I don't know what that is. I, I'd love to find out. Um, there's there's Mamuna, uh, for example, um, that was a celebration that, that uh, during the summertime too, wasn't there? Um, no, Mamuna is at the end of Passover. Um, uh, but this would be too far of an excursion for today, but even Passover, for example, was built on an earlier pre-Israelite spring festival. I mean, that's the way we roll as people. That's just how it works. Um, that's not unique to Jewish festivals. Just think about the history of Christmas uh, or anything like that, and you'll, you'll be able to come up with uh, similar things just the same way as different traditions build their holy sites on previous uh, cultures, holy sites 
and incorporate their stories into the next, the next iteration of culture in that place. It's very, very layered. And do so- wanna, Do you want to find a story about how, how Hanukkah comes to be on the 25th of Kislev? Uh, whose story is this? Um, it's from um, uh, Raquel Elior, who is um, a teacher at Hebrew University and an expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls. She's an excellent scholar. What, what, what have you got? So I forget his name, but there was a Babylonian king and his birthday was on the 25th and he liked his birthday. So he figured why have it only once a year? So he declared that the 25th of every month was his birthday huh. and everybody should celebrate it, obviously giving him gifts. So I don't remember his name, but we're more than 3,000 years later, and we celebrate Hanukkah on the 25th of Kislev, because the 25th is a day of celebration, and the Christians celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December, because the 25th was made of that part of the world celebrated on the 25th. That's, that sounds pretty likely. I mean, emperors got to declare the calendar. That's how we have the month of July and the month of August. Well, um, and Raquel Elior told that when I studied with her, she knew the name of the king, etc. Um, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you, Gwen. Um, okay, so uh, I was talking about Rabbi Joshua and about these sages who are the um, sort of, I would, you could call them the founding fathers of Jewish, of, of rabbinic Judaism. What we know about them is lore, mostly. They're historical figures, but the stories that develop about them that then get recorded in the Talmud are stories built up over centuries of story making. And so, we can't actually, we don't actually know what Yehoshua ben Hananiah was like very much, but we know the character. Think of him as a literary character who's there to teach us something. And don't worry about the historicity of whether these things happened or not, because they tell a really compelling story about the foundations of the Judaism that emerged after the destruction of the temple. Um, so the first story I want to share with you is, uh, so I have my big book. Gwen asked if, if I knew what I was going to do so she could project it, but I didn't know yet because I, uh, I think my Artishaba of commemoration last night just really floored me emotionally. And uh, uh, I haven't been my most efficient so far today, but uh, I did get myself prepared. <laughs> so in one of the most famous stories um, about the destruction of the temple, the central story, which I, I will actually summarize a lot of it for you, um, Jerusalem's under siege. Yochanan, it's the year 70. Yochanan ben Zakkai 
is understood to be the leader of the party of Jews in the walled city of Jerusalem and, and, and surroundings who favors accommodation with the Romans. Jerusalem has been under siege for uh, uh, two years, I think, three maybe. People are dying and starving. Uh, Jerusalem has been taken control of by the party of zealots, which we talked about uh, in a previous class uh, when we talked about Pinchas, um, uh, who will brook no compromise with the Romans. And as the law comes down to us, um, excuse me, I'm just going to start here. Uh, according to the story, Vespasian, the Roman general who was besieging the city, made an agreement to keep enough food going into the city and enough firewood so that people wouldn't freeze and wouldn't starve. But the zealots rose up and burned the stores of wheat and barley so that presently a famine ensued in the city. So, fight to the death. When Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai went out to walk in the marketplace, and saw the people of Jerusalem eating, stra eating straw and drinking its water, he said to himself, can anyone eating straw withstand Vespasian's troops? Matters must, cannot be remedied unless I get out of the city and attempt to make peace with the Romans. There was a man named Abbasikara ben Batya, who was the head of the zealots in Jerusalem, and happened to be Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's nephew. Rabbi Yochanan sent word to him, come visit me in secret. When Abbasikara came, Rabbi Yochanan asked him, how long will you men continue what you are doing? You're killing all the people by famine. Abbasikara replied, what choice have I? If I object, they'll kill me. So Rabbi Yochanan said, well, then you have to come up with a plan to get me out of the city. Abba Sakar said, we've agreed among ourselves that no man may leave the city except as a corpse. Rabbi Yochanan said, then have me taken out as a corpse. So his nephew said, okay, pretend to be sick. Let every, this is I'm quoting from the Midrash. Pretend to be ill. Let everyone come to visit you. Have something foul smelling brought and put at your side so that they'll say, Rabbi Yochanan is dead. Then let your disciples come and carry the casket with you in it. Make sure that others are not allowed to carry it so that your body's light weight will not be noticed. It is well known that a living body weighs less than a corpse. I like that line. I think it's, I, I think it's true. It's like, that's why you say dead weight. You know, it's not that it's physically actually lighter, but... Um, you know, a body is kind of buoyed up by the muscle structure. So Rabbi Yochanan acted on Abbasikara's advice. He sent for his disciples, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Joshua. This is the Rabbi Joshua I mentioned, and this is one of the stories in which he appears. He's a disciple of Rabbi Yochanan. And said to them, 
let's do this, my children. Have me taken out of Jerusalem. Make a coffin for me and I'll lie down in it. Well, they managed to sneak him out of the city. It's a very high drama. They want to stab the body to make sure it's dead. They want to, and he's, no, no, no. They, they managed to get the body out of the city. And then in this famous passage, the disciples continued to carry the coffin until they got to Vespasian. And when they opened the coffin, Rabbi Yochanan stood up before him and said, Peace to you, O king. Okay, so that's the drama. They bring a coffin to the feet of the Roman general. Rabbi Yochanan gets out and says, Peace to you, O king. And then there's a whole excursion where Vespasian says, I'm not the king. I'm the general. What are you talking about? I'm not the emperor. And Yochanan uh, Mertzakai says to him, Well, it's going to happen. Because, and then just then it says, a messenger came from Rome to Vespasian and said, arise, Caesar is dead. And the notables of Rome have decided to make you head of the state. So Rabbi Yochanan's made out to be a prophet, you know, a seer. And so Vespasian says to Rabbi Yochanan, this is one of the longest stories in the Talmud that I know. I'm leaving out whole chunks of it, which are fun to read. Vespasian said, well, I got to get back to Rome. However, you can make a request of me and I will grant it. And Rabbi Yochanan famously says, give me Yavne and its sages. Okay, again, for those unfamiliar with what that represents in, in Jewish thought, hey, it just started to rain here. I'm closing my window. Um, Yavne is a place down from Jerusalem towards the coastal plain which is a place. It's a place where Rabbi Yochanan wanted to set up the rabbinic court outside of Jerusalem so that the rabbinic and Jewish infrastructure could survive even after the rebellion was crushed. So Rabbi Yochanan is um, uh, uh, Rabbi Yochanan is um, credited in Jewish tradition with being the one who had the foresight and the um, orientation to know that the, the, that, that the jig was up with Rome, that Jewish, the Jewish re resistance against Rome was not going to succeed, and that Judaism was at risk of being destroyed. Uh, and so he takes his disciples, including Rabbi Joshua, to um, Yavne, and where they agree to give up national sovereignty in order to preserve Jewish culture, law, and practice. So there's a famous story. There are, several, there are many, but there's a well-known story, which um, I just have to grab. I left it on the printer. Be right back.
It once happened that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was leaving Jerusalem with Rabbi Joshua. This is the rabbi who I've been focused on. And they saw the ruins of the temple. Rabbi Joshua said, woe to us, for the place where the sins of Israel were, were atoned for has been destroyed. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, do not be bitter, my son, for we have another form of atonement, which is as great. And this is gmilut chasadim, which means acts of kindness. As the verse says in the prophets, for it is kindness I desire and not burnt offerings. As you know, um, hold on, I'm distracted. Uh, I don't know what the chat is, uh, the digression that Joan and Robert Lefkowitz are on, which is fine. Uh, but uh, anyway, I'll go on, sorry. Looks interesting, but it's not where I'm headed. Um, so, um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's formulation is that in the absence of sacrifice, we can still gain atonement and closeness to God through studying Torah, through prayer, and through acts of loving kindness. And I wanted to mention those stories about Yochanan ben Zakkai because Rabbi Joshua then takes up that theme in all the stories about him. Uh, now, Rabbi Joshua is known as a homely person, not an attractive person, a person whose fingernails are black because he works as a blacksmith making nails for a living. He's not from aristocracy. He's not good looking. He's not wealthy. Uh, and he's got a heart that's enormous. So as Judaism tries to determine what to do um, in the, um, in the aftermath, of this horror, there's a famous story about Rabbi Joshua speaking to the next generation of disciples. And that story goes like this. Um, I'm sorry. I have to look at my notes. Like I said, it was a disorganized morning. Uh, it's a, Gwen, it's the story you sent me in the email about uh, what are we supposed to do now that the temple's destroyed? Um. Thank you. I'll read you this version. The sages taught, when the temple was destroyed a second time, the second time is the year 70, 
there was an increase in the number of ascetics among the Jews, whose practice was to not eat meat and to not drink wine. Practices of mourning. Um, Rabbi Yehoshua joined them to discuss their practice. He said to them, my children, for what reason do you not eat meat and do not drink wine? They said to him, shall we eat meat from which offerings are sacrificed upon the altar? And now the altar has ceased to exist? Do you follow sacrifices of meat, of animals were the centerpiece of um, the temple rituals. If they're not there, we can't eat meat anymore. Each time we'll taste meat, we'll think of what's not there. We need to not do it. Shall we drink wine, which is poured as a libation upon the altar, and now the altar has ceased to exist? So here's how Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi Joshua talks. He said to them, well, if so, we shouldn't eat bread either. Since the meal offerings, the grain offerings that were offered upon the altar have ceased. They replied, you're right. We're not going to eat bread. We're just going to eat fruits and vegetables. He said to them, well, we shouldn't eat fruits and vegetables either. Since the bringing of the first fruits has ceased, also which happened in the temple. They replied, you're right. We're not gonna eat any of those produce that were offered at the temple. We're just gonna eat other, other things that grow. And he said to them, okay, but we shouldn't drink water because the water libation has ceased, which was another ritual in the temple. And they were silent as they realized they could not survive without water. So Rabbi Yoshua said to them, my children, that's what he said, you know, it's like saying Kindelach. That's the kind of person he was. It's one reason I love reading his stories. Come, I will tell you how we should act. And this is a very deep statement and speaks to us in this moment. To not mourn at all is impossible. As the decree was already issued and the temple has been destroyed, in other words, the catastrophe has happened, the tragedy has taken place. How could we not mourn? But to mourn excessively as you are doing is also impossible. As the sages do not issue a decree upon the public unless the majority of the public is able to abide by it. In other words, asceticism is not the answer, says Yehoshua. Um, it's, there's this famous line in the Torah that gets um, taken out, in, intentionally taken out of context that says, uh, by my commandments, you shall live. And the rabbis say, live and not die. We can't follow practices that we can't live by. We have to live with them. Um, So Rabbi Yeshua continued, rather, this is what the sages said. A person may plaster his house with plaster. In other words, build your houses, build your homes, but he must leave over a small amount in it without plaster, 
to remember the destruction of the temple. So you're supposed to, to this day, observant Jews will leave a, a little square on their wall unpainted. That practice is still in, in, in uh, used. Um, uh, Rav Chista said this should be opposite the entrance so that it is visible to all. Rabbi Yeshua continued. The sages said that a person may prepare all that he needs for a meal, but he must leave out a small item to remember the destruction of the temple. And then you see it dot, dot, dot. The rest of that paragraph is the rabbis discussing um, uh, uh, the rabbis um, discussing what they should leave out of the meal. They say, well, something like a fried fish, piece of fried fish. And there's a whole discussion about it. I thought it was very, very good. Uh, Rabbi Yoshua said, the sages said that a woman may engage in all of her cosmetic treatments, but she must leave out some piece of makeup or some piece of jewelry to remember the destruction of the temple. The source of, for these practices is a verse that says, if I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its cunning. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I remember you not, if I set not Jerusalem above my highest joy. Um, and um, that's one of the most famous Yahushua stories, which sets the tone for how Judaism is going to deal with catastrophic loss. How do you deal with it? Well, if you remember, there's another custom, which is we break a glass at a wedding. That in another story in the Talmud is also explained as the way we remember the calamity, but we're still getting married. We're still gonna have babies. We're still gonna put on makeup we're still going to uh, live. Uh, so I love that story as a, um, as a kind of a, a beautiful kind of container for uh, uh, how you go on. And it certainly can speak to us now because it's, it's a story that's about the psychology of grief, right? About how collectively we mark time and space in a way so that we don't forget and honor those who've passed. It's like those who put pictures of their ancestors on the wall, you know? It's like those who you can't, if you don't have a way to, if you don't, or have a special spot in their home. If you don't have a way to contain the loss that is essentially the tragedy of being alive in the human condition, if you don't have a way to contain it, then it overwhelms you. But if you don't have a way to um, acknowledge it and honor it, then it will seep unconsciously into your life and overwhelm you. So this becomes one of the many times in Jewish, 
part of the genius of Judaism is how you remember and still choose life, right? And so I think about uh, Rabbi Yoshua. Let me read you another story about him. Uh, here, this one I can actually put my finger on. Thanks for having that text ready, Gwen. Like I said, I've been all discombobulated today. Um, okay, I love this story. There are many stories, none of which I expect to be actually records, but are a genre of stories where Rabbi Yehoshua is talking to Caesar or to the daughter of Caesar or to a Roman matron. And uh, I mean, we have no evidence necessarily that uh, he even ever traveled to Rome. We just don't know. But here's the homely, homespun, down-to-earth guy, okay, who is the archetype that is Rabbi Joshua, who's got a big heart. And this story goes like this. Once, the daughter of Caesar said to Rabbi Joshua ben Hanania, what a pity, such glorious wisdom in so ugly a vessel. That's the line, right? He replied, my child, in what kind of vessel does your father keep his wine? She said, well, obviously in an earthenware vessel. Rabbi Joshua said, but ordinary people keep wine in such vessels. You know, your, your dad's the Caesar. Um, and uh, she said, well, what else should we keep it in? Rabbi Joshua said, well, you're such important persons. You should keep it in vessels of silver or even gold. So she went off and spoke to her father who immediately had the wine put into vessels of silver and gold where it soon turned sour. Then Caesar asked his daughter, who gave you this advice? She said, Rabbi Joshua. So he summoned Rabbi Joshua and said to him, why did you give my daughter such advice? Well, she asked me the question, how such glorious wisdom in so ugly a vessel. So I just turned it around and asked her. Uh, so that's the story, you know, the good wine needs to be an earthen vessel. And then there's the punchline, which is that Caesar says, but aren't there also learned people who are handsome? And Rabbi Joshua said, well, if these handsome people were ugly, they would be even wiser. That's the end of the story. I love that. I think, I think it's not just a good comeback. I think that um, if you're beautiful on the outside, uh, I've talked to many people for whom that's been a hindrance uh, in terms of how they get treated by the world toward the growth of their own inner wisdom. It's a very interesting story about, um, about Rabbi Joshua. Um, I'm gonna read you another story about Rabbi Joshua and his desire for um, his lack of lust for power. I should say. In this story, we know historically that the Emperor Hadrian, so in 70, Jerusalem's destroyed, but it isn't actually historically the end of the Jewish revolt. Jews were all over the Roman Empire. They were not satisfied. 
and there was continual uprisings basically for the next 60 years. Uh, Jewish national aspirations weren't crushed until 135, 65 years afterwards when the Bar Kokhba rebellion was crushed by Rome. In the meantime, in the interim, the Emperor Hadrian, somewhere around the beginning of the second century, actually gave the Jews permission to rebuild their temple. It's an interesting part of history. Um, uh, and that permission was then rescinded. I forget. Another emperor came to the throne. Who knows? It's like, that's politics. Uh, the next emperor hated Hadrian and had a grudge against him and wanted to do everything to reverse Hadrian's policies, that kind of thing. If uh, you know what I'm talking about. But anyway, this story about Rabbi Joshua says um, that the Jews were getting all excited about building the temple. Then their hopes were dashed when the decree was rescinded. And uh, the people assembled in the valley and wanted to rebel against Caesar. The sages said, alarmed, the sages said, let's send a wise man to go pacify this assembly. So they picked Rabbi Joshua. And he should go because he's a master of wisdom. And so Rabbi Joshua went to these, these people who were ready to rebel and he told them a fable. He said, as a lion was devouring his prey, a bone stuck in his throat. He wailed, I have a bone in my throat. I'll give a great reward to anyone who'll remove it. So an Egyptian heron with a long beak came forward, plunged his beak into the lion's throat, rested out the bone, and then said, so give me my reward. The lion said, get out of here. You can tell everyone you put your head in a lion's mouth and came out in one piece. You can have no greater reward than that. That's the end of the fable, right? So Joshua said to the crowd, it should be enough for us that we have entered into dealings with Rome and have not been crushed again as we were the last time. I like that story. Uh, oh, Wendy wrote a comment. I completely agree and it's a lesson in the previous story in not dismissing people based on looks, disability, color, accent. You're wiser if ugly because you've had to develop an internal strength and perspective on what is truly important. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you. So that's the tone of Rabbi Joshua. He is not interested in fighting a power that he can't, that will, he's seen the destruction already. He's not gonna do it and he's gonna find another way. And so, he then plays this, I'm, I've been interested in, interested in this because my colleague Rabbi Maurice Harris recently wrote a book, a short book about Rabbi Joshua, a set called The Forgotten Sage. And, uh, uh, and it got me thinking about the, how he plays a linchpin role in what is a body of literature that comes out of this period that wrestles with 
what are the priorities of Judaism in the wake of the dashing of and crushing of our national, sovereign, national sovereignty. And so in some very lengthy stories about this cadre of rabbinic leaders who are trying to reshape Judaism uh, in the wake of the destruction, um, some themes emerge. One of the main themes that emerges is what is the balance between autocratic leadership and majority rule? How do you, how do you create a culture that's flexible, respectful, um, believes in debate and compromise, while you're also trying to construct a hierarchy where the, where the rules will be followed without state power. So these are these key questions that these stories about these most famous sages are in the Talmud that are describing how Judaism is going to survive in exile. How do you create an egalitarian enough, a, how do you honor compromise, debate, uh, at the same time as you try to keep everyone on the same page, as it were? A huge challenge. Um, that word isn't big enough. It's part of the miracle and genius of Judaism that uh, allowed us to um, persist. And so in these stories, which I, are, are to be read <coughs> as illustrative and teaching stories, there are um, a couple of very famous ones, which I'm not going to read at length because we're going to run out of time, but I'm going to summarize. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai has died, and the next generation has now created the rabbinic academy, the Sanhedrin, in Yavne, outside of Jerusalem. The office of high priest ended. It ended, right? It was over. The, the capital had been raised, the center of Jewish activity, and to be replaced by the chief rabbi, Paul asks. Um, yes, but only in, with the hindsight of history do we know that happened. There were many Jewish factions scrambling to survive. The stories I'm telling are stories basically that crystallize several centuries later as the rabbis become more and more dominant faction of Judaism. So it's not like there was a Jewish council. Oh, high priest is gone. Now we need a rabbi. It didn't happen that way. It only happens that way in the stories that were told centuries later, which is, uh, are the distillation of this process over much time. Jonathan, I, my understanding yes. is there was a Nasi of the Sanhedrin even when there was a Kohen Hagadol. Yes, but uh, we the reason we think of that Nasi, that chief of the Sanhedrin, as being somehow very powerful in Jewish life is because that's the story that rabbinic Judaism told about it. 
There were the Essenes. There were the early Christians. There were the who didn't agree or follow the head of the Sanhedrin's rulings at all. This was, in other words, picture the rubble of Israel and the scramble for survival. That's historically what's going on. But only as, as we are the inheritors of that Judaism through the rabbis, we've learned the st stories of the rabbis who told stories about their ascendancy. Uh, it's very similar to what's going on in this country right now as um, the, um, the American mythos that we were raised on that ignored the fact that uh, we became the wealthiest nation in the world thanks to slave labor uh, is now being shattered, right? The mythic historical narrative of America is currently being shattered to be replaced hopefully by a more accurate description. Um, but um, in the meantime, what I'm talking about is lore, not history, but lore that has a profound message in it for what rabbinic Judaism aspired to. And what rabbinic Judaism aspired to, for me, is very admirable, and I'm proud to have inherited it. Right? Uh, uh, the rabbinical schools go back to these early times, Paul. I'm just saying that they weren't as dominant in Jewish life as the stories they tell about themselves later. Um, Hillel and Shami were teaching when the temple stood. That's all true. Um, and I guess, uh, uh, but they, as Ellen says, these stories take place in uncertain times. We look back in hindsight, they were living through it, trying to figure out what comes next. Think about us, right? Um, think, about, think about the foundation of Israel in 1948, three years after the Holocaust. When you read the history, it was chaotic. It was desperate. It was hanging by a thread. Later, we can tell, later, because it's human nature to do this, we construct a narrative that's not the messiness of history, but the theme that we want to tell about our survival, right? So that's all I'm talking about. Um, okay, I'll be running out of time soon. So here's what I wanted to tell you. So in the stories, Rabbi Yochanan is gone and Rabbi, Rabbi Gamaliel, is now the head of the rabbinic body. And he is an aristocrat, comes from a priestly family too. And uh, he does, he's, he's a wealthy man, presumably a landowner. And he doesn't understand. In these stories, Rabbi Joshua is the one who essentially illuminates to Rabbi Gamliel that Rabban Gamliel is out of touch with regular people. In these stories, it, Rabban Gamliel, in, in ancient times, in, in these times, they used to announce the new moon by having witnesses observe it and come to the court of the rabbis who could then declare such and such a day as the new moon. And there's a story that I'm going to summarize right now where witnesses bring an obviously fallacious report to Rabban Gamliel about when the new moon is. 
and he accepts it and declares the new moon. Rabbi Joshua does not. Now, why is this so important? Because without knowing when the new moon is, you can't celebrate the holidays on the right day. And again, in, a pre, in, this, in this world of this time, uh, you could see a sliver of a moon on one night, or is it the next night? Or what, you know? And so it had to be, there had to be an authority to declare when the new moon was in order to keep um, a cent a coherent order amongst this scattered people, right? No central government. And so Rabbi Gamaliel accepts this fallacious report. Rabbi Joshua says, no, that's not right. Rabbi Gamaliel gets wind of that, calls him to the academy and has him stand before Rabbi Gamaliel while Rabbi Gamaliel declares the new moon. And, oh, no, 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 I have to amplify it. He calls him on the day. So this is the new moon of Tishrei. He calls him on the day that would have been Yom Kippur. If Rabbi Joshua is right, it's going to be the next day because of Rabbi Gamliel's claim. And Rabbi Joshua shows up carrying his staff and his money bag because he had to travel on what would have been, if he was right, Yom Kippur. So Rabbi Gamliel is making a blatant power play to get Rabbi Joshua to stand there on the day he thinks is Yom Kippur, breaking the rules of Yom Kippur, carrying money, traveling, in order to show that Rabbi Gamliel's word is law, even if he's mistaken. And he waits for Rabbi Joshua to contradict him. And Rabbi Joshua refuses, does not contradict him. He's going to respect Rabbi Gamaliel's authority. And there are several stories like this. And um, the, the sort of denouement, the, 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 the postscript of the story is that, hey, let me find it so I can read it to you correctly. Um, Page 217. Uh, yeah. Um, in a very long narrative, Robin Gamaliel realizes he was mistaken. And he says, since the decision sides with Rabbi Joshua, I will go and apologize to him. When he reached Rabbi Joshua's house, he saw that its walls were covered with coal black soot. He said to him, from the walls of your house, it is apparent that you are a charcoal burner. In other words, somebody who's working with, in the dirtiest conditions. Rabbi Joshua replied, woe to the generation whose leader you are and woe to the ship whose pilot you are. For you know nothing of the troubles of others, how they make their living and how they sustain themselves. Reverend Gamliel said, in all humility, I ask you to forgive me. It says Rabbi Joshua was unmoved. Do it then, Reverend Gamliel said, out of respect for my father. 
At this, Rabbi Joshua made his peace with Rabbi Gamliel. Such a powerful statement of the rich guy coming to apologize to the sage who's ugly, whose hands are black, who works, who he, he, he supports himself through his labor and has Rabbi Gamliel's eyes opened. And then Rabbi Joshua forgives him. And then Rabbi Joshua goes and um, um, advocates for Rabbi Gamliel's reinstatement in his role. Which leads to another, one more story, one more famous story about Rabbi Joshua, which is a debate he's having with the other leader of the Sanhedrin, Rabbi Eliezer. He and several others, and this one will ring a bell for you about the oven, a certain kind of oven, and whether it is permitted to use this oven if it's constructed one way or another way, an obscure discussion about the proper way to prepare food. And Rabbi Eliezer's opinion is, yes, you can use it. The others is no. And Rabbi Eliezer says in a famous, famous story, if I am correct in my ruling, let this carob tree prove it. And the carob tree was uprooted and replanted a hundred cubits away. And Rabbi Joshua and his, his associate said, so a carob tree just jumped a hundred meters. Who cares? That doesn't prove you're right. Rabbi Elijah said, okay, if I'm right, let this channel of water prove it. And the water channel started flowing uphill. They said, that doesn't prove anything, that you're right. Okay, okay. If the halacha is with me, then the walls of this study house are going to cave in on us. And they start to cave in. And Rabbi Joshua says, uh, it says, Rabbi Joshua rebuked the wall, saying, when the disciples of the sages are engaged in a dispute over the correct way to do something, what right have you to interfere? And hence, in deference to Rabbi Joshua, the wall stopped caving in. And in deference to Rabbi Eliezer, they didn't go upright again. And they remain bent to this day, it says. Okay. Okay, says Rabbi Eliezer. If the law agrees with me, let a voice from heaven prove it. And sure enough, a divine voice cried out. Why are you disputing with Rabbi Eliezer? He's right. And Rabbi Joshua stood up and quoted the Torah and said, the law is not in heaven. It is not in heaven. It is in your hearts and in your mouths that you can do it. We don't pay attention to a divine voice because at Mount Sinai, you gave us the Torah. Oh my God. And you wrote in the Torah, after the majority, one must incline. And we are voting three against one against Eliezer. 
So Joshua is arguing with God that you gave us the Torah. It's like, even if we're, even if we're wrong, we get to decide by majority. And so that's the end of the story, except for the famous postscript that uh, another rabbi ran into the prophet Elijah. Remember, Elijah's going back and forth between heaven all the time and then down to earth still to this very day we're waiting for Elijah, right? We opened the door for him and said, you know, when you were performing, when God was performing all those miracles for Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Joshua and his cohort were saying, so what? What, what, was your, what was God doing in the heavenly court? And this, as many of you know, is the most, one of those famous answers in Judaism. Oh, God was laughing and saying, my children have surpassed me. My children have surpassed me. So Rabbi Joshua fits this moment, this role where in the wake of the destruction of the temple and the need to create a viable cultural form to carry Judaism into the future. It's a form that privileges the majority over the autocrat, that privileges life over asceticism, that privileges debate over autocracy, um, that wants the kindelach to live. And um, that reminds us that wisdom is contained even in an ugly vessel, or maybe more wisdom is contained in an ugly vessel than a shiny one. Um, yes, lo bashamayim. It is not in heaven. This radical idea that somehow God wants us to take over. Um, and that in the absence of, um, in the absence of a direct channel to God in the ancient temple, it's up to us to debate and figure it out and work with comedy and uh, treat each other well and perform acts of kindness as the vehicle towards, um, as another way to stay close to God. So those are the rabbinic themes that I've just condensed from maybe a semester long course into a, a little discourse today. Uh, I hope, um, I hope it's been interesting for you to listen to. And it's time for us to stop.